we spend 50%, 50% of our time, 50% of our energy on the go-to-market. We ask ourselves all the time, how will it be sold? How can we get more customers to that? How can we get more users? So it took me, I think, a week to realize that I want to have another startup that I had mistakes and I've done mistakes, but eventually this is what I, my passion is and I'm really good at in building businesses and building teams and building companies. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm joined by my GGV partner, Oren Younger. Welcome, Oren. Happy to be here, Glenn. Well, we're both super excited to welcome Idan Tendler to the show. Idan's the Senior Vice President of Application Security at Palo Alto Networks, and he took on that role after Palo Alto acquired Bridge Crew, a company that develops and delivers security as code, which Idan founded and served as the CEO of before exiting successfully to Palo Alto in two short years. On top of this, Idan's also the chairman and co-founder of Place IL, which is a nonprofit tech initiative that empowers Israeli tech companies to effectively hire talent from underrepresented populations in Israel and do so at scale. We're very excited about Place IL, and we're going to talk about that today. And prior to Bridge Crew and Palo Alto Networks, Idan was the co-founder and CEO of Fortscale, a cybersecurity analytics startup that pioneered the UEBA category in security. Fortscale was acquired by RSA Security and became its main security analytics platform. Idan also built and led the cybersecurity business group at Elbit Systems, Israel's leading defense integrator. And he's held multiple roles in the venture capital and tech industries, including in business development, strategy, and product management. He was also an officer and commander in Israeli's leading tech intelligence corp, uh, the very famous Unit 8200. Today, we're, we're really excited to talk to Idan about his entrepreneurial journey, selling two businesses to security giants, as well as his latest nonprofit initiative, Place IL. And we're excited at GGV to be supporting Place IL. Idan, welcome to Founder Real Talk. It's great to have you. Wow. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Owen. It's a great honor. I think after these nice words, maybe we should uh, stop here. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Well, listen, you're a serial founder, and we love having serial founders on the show. Did you always know you wanted to be, you wanted to found companies? Like, was this something you were, you were kind of born with? Or when did you realize that you wanted to found your first company? Was there like some moment that you remember where you realized, wow, this is what I want to do with my life and, and you decided to take the plunge or? Well, yeah, actually never. You know, in university, I, I took industrial engineering and I remember explicitly that we had like one seminar about entrepreneurship and I said, wow, I don't need to get that one. I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. I thought I would do something else. I would be a manager or like an industrial engineer. And, you know, my first real job was in, as you mentioned, in Elbit Systems, which is like the biggest defense integrator in Israel. And they called me, you know, to do something, to have an analysis on cybersecurity. And I found myself building a team. 
and building a story and building a mission and, and building a business. And after one year, I led dozens of people. And actually, I found myself being a founder in a really big company. And, you know, in retrospect, I was probably always an entrepreneur, also in my military service and even in high school. But I needed the opportunity to prove to myself that it's something that I love doing and I'm probably good at. That's great. So, Dan, you founded two companies, the first one, Fourscale, the second one, Bridge Group. And in previous conversations, in previous talks, you mentioned that Fourscale was not a huge success, but you did sell it to RSA. Could you talk about why did you sell it to RSA and perhaps some of the key lessons that you learned from this experience? Yeah, you know, uh, first, my mother always said that uh, Fortscale was a huge success, right? I mean, we raised more than $20 million and we had dozens of employees and we had dozens of paying customers and we actually provided value to them. But you're right. I mean, the outcome of Fortscale wasn't a success. Uh, and after like five years, we sold it to RSA Security. And I felt personally like big, big failure. This is not what I imagined. This is not what I... You know, I spent five years of my life and, you know, you know, being a founder, being an entrepreneur, it's hard, you know, it's a, it's a, it's fun, but it's really hard. And we sold it to RSA security. I mean, we understood that there is no uh, future, uh, big future for this company, actually for the market. And RSA was a good home. It was a good, it was a good home for that. What led you to believe that this is not a huge opportunity and at what point do you decide, you know, this is time to find a good home, if you will, and how to navigate that environment? Yeah, I mean, after like four years, we saw that uh, it's not scaling. I mean, it's not, you have more and more customers, but it's really hard. It's a hard sale and it's really, the value is limited and the market is not big as we expect it to be. And, you know, and we sold the company. And after we sold the company, you know, I took a year off. And I had lots of time to, first of all, to meet my kids <laughs> for the first time and to meet myself. I had lots of time doing hiking and uh, uh, some reflection time. And I asked myself, what happened there? What happened in these five years? What was I like, what I was really good at and what, uh, what are the biggest mistakes uh, we've had and, and I had? And I came to a variety of conclusions. Some of them are very, very personal. Some of them are less. But, you know, I understood eventually that we had three big mistakes and the mistakes were mine. The first, that we never had a real product market fit. And everybody, especially on podcasts, everybody uh, is talking about product market fit and how it's important to have one. And I'm telling you from my experience, it's like not easy as the you know as you could imagine. In Foldscan, we had an amazing, amazing one and two years. You know, after one year, one year from foundation, we had big wins. We won Cisco as a really big customer. It was like something like one million dollar deal. And after two weeks, we won another deal. Another Fortune 100 big insurance company. We had like $2 million in ARR after one year. That's amazing, right? 
yeah, and you know, everybody was excited and the board was excited and we said, wow, you know, we nailed it. Now let's build a big company. Let's build a big security, a big sales team, a big marketing team. And this is what we've done. And after another one year, we understood that actually the product was not there. The product was built to win Cisco and the product was built to win the other company. And we understood that these companies they actually don't represent the market. They are very, very advanced. And the majority of customers are not there. The majority of customers, they want something super simple. They don't want an advanced product as they did. So we understood that the product is not ready or is not relevant for the mass market. And actually, we understood there is no market. So the, the need for this type of products was actually really limited in the mass market. And we couldn't see that. We couldn't see that because we actually had great wins. And it's really hard to see that, you know, in real time, only in retrospect. But it's probably the, a very, very big message for everybody and for myself, you know, build and make sure that you have a product market fit. Now, the second, you know, thing that maybe mistake we've done, that actually we focused a lot on the technology and we focused a lot on the machine learning and yeah, let's build like the best machine learning ever and let's build all the professors from university. And we didn't invest a lot of attention and energy and thoughts on the go-to-market, on how to sell that. And this is why it was really hard to scale. We didn't plan, we didn't build the muscle to sell this in scale. And the third mistake probably, and this is very personal, you know, I built and I planned, I built a company to be acquired. And we built a company that eventually we thought we were sure that it's going to be acquired. And nobody talked about that, right? It was like in the back of our mind. But we built a company that was supposed to be very shiny. So we brought all the biggest, you know, executives and the rock stars. So if you would open the website of this company it will look amazing and we put lots of attention on partnerships like uh, business development and and in retrospect it's like sorry huge mistake i didn't put all the efforts on the business and building a healthy business and you know i promised to myself to never repeat this mistake again sounds like some great lessons after you sold Fortscale and you, you took all those hikes and the year off, you still had the entrepreneurial bug and you ultimately founded Bridge Crew. Tell us what the process was like. What was the ideation process like for you to start another security company? And what was different about this one? What, what did you try to change in the early days based on the lessons you learned from Fortscale? So it took me, I think, a week uh, to realize that I want to have another startup that uh, I had mistakes and I've done mistakes. But eventually, this is what I, my passion is and I'm really good at in building businesses and building teams and building companies. So after like one week, I understood that I need to have another one. Now, the question was, uh, which one and with whom? And it took me a year to realize what should be the next company. And it was a journey, like uh, doing a hike, I guess. But because... I, you know, and I wrote a lot, Glenn, I wrote a lot. I wrote like uh, memos and like 
a journal that uh, uh, with all my conclusions and my insights. And Bridge Crew was more or less the opposite of fold scale. Um, my experience was really, really different. I mean, we talked about product market fit. In Bridge Crew, we didn't write a single line of code before we talked to something like 100 customers. So we insisted that we are going to talk to as many customers as possible, small, medium, big, to understand their pain. Another thing that we've done after we understood the pain, we said, okay, let's, let's become the customers. So actually, after one month, we already had paying customers, but really, really small ones, exactly the opposite. It's not like Fortune 100, it's like almost SMBs. And because we had SMBs that became our customers, we understood the pain. It wasn't with conversations. We became the customers. We provided service to them, like security service, cloud security. And this is why we felt after like five months that we totally get the need and we are sure there is going to be a huge market and we understood exactly which product we should build. So this is one thing. And another thing, we talked about the go-to market that, you know, we spent a lot in my first startup, we spent a lot, lot of energy on the technology. And here from day one, we spent 50%. 50% of our time, 50% of our energy on the go-to-market. We ask ourselves all the time, how will it be sold? How can we get more customers to that? How can we get more users? And we understood it's not necessarily a technology question. It's a, it's a business question. And this is how we came up with our open source, our checkoff. But it came from the go-to-market uh, journey. And the third thing I promised to myself that the next company is not going to be acquired. That I think I told it to Oren once, you know, in one of my hikes, you know, usually I, I took the kids and threw them in their kindergarten. And I went to the favorite grocery in San Francisco and I, you know, I took my sandwich. It was usually avocado with cheese, I think. And I remember eating that. And I remember looking at the, the guy, the manager of the grocery store, and I, I thought to myself, wow, he is like a manager of a nice business, and he doesn't think about M&A, right? Uh, he doesn't <laughs> think about an exit. He just runs the business, and he cares about today and maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. And I said, I need to build a business like a grocery rather than a startup that is going to be acquired. And Bridgeco was exactly like that. We built a very, very healthy business. We didn't have... The rock stars, actually, all the managers, all the executives were amazing, but they were all hands on and we didn't spend too much time on like partnerships and other bullshit like that. It was just bringing more users and making them happy. That's awesome. So you built Bridge Crew to be an amazing grocery store in the cybersecurity business. I'm kidding. But you had, you know, you touched on that you had that checkoff, which is an important open source component. Could you tell us how important was Chekhov to the business? How did this allow you to open the gates and, and kind of expand and go to market? And was it a good decision to the business? Wow, for sure. <laughs> I mean, when we understood the pain that we want to solve, the pain was, you know, how can we better secure your cloud environment? And the answer was helping developers because developers are the only Oh, this is the only way to secure cloud in scale. They are writing the code. 
and you need to help them. When we understood that this is what we need to do, you remember we asked ourselves, how will we sell it? And we didn't know even what will be the product. We asked ourselves when we will have a product, how we will sell it. And we understood that the users are developers. Now, developers don't love security. That didn't change. They do not like security. And we asked ourselves, how can we make them love security? How can we make them use our product whenever it will be ready? And we understood that we need to think differently. It's not going to be like selling a product to the CISO, to the chief security officer, you know, in big conferences over big dinners and big proof of concepts. It's going to be different. Developers don't like to pay anything, definitely not for security. So let's give it for free. And this is how we came up with Chekhov. Chekhov, the idea behind Chekhov was actually go to market around distribution. How can we get more and more developers? Now, it was a huge bet. And we did like a really big homework on that. And we talked to lots of companies, including big names that are running big open source projects. And everybody told us, don't do that. It's going to be a huge mistake. And 99% of the open source projects, they, you know, they fail or they're not becoming a, a real business. But we said, yeah, let's, let's take this bet. And it was a huge one, but a very successful one. We have now millions of millions of developers using our open source. And you know what's important? It created a trust of developers. It created a community. And yeah, it helped the business. It helped the business a lot. That's awesome. How do you get developers to love security and not hate it? That could have helped me a, a while ago. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so you get developers loving your product uh, via your open source, and uh, you start signing up customers, not Fortune 500, but SMBs first, and then uh, the customers start rolling in. And fast forward two years, and that third promise you made to yourself that you're building a grocery store for security and you're not going to think about acquisition. And two years in, Bridge Crew joins Palo Alto Networks in a very successful acquisition. Why did you decide to accept this offer and uh, turn the keys to the grocery store over to Palo Alto? Hmm. So as I mentioned, and seriously, we didn't plan for that. It was like a big surprise. And when Palo Alto Networks came to us, they gave us like a really, really good offer. But it was more than that. We understood that Palo Alto Networks could be an amazing platform, amazing home for our ambitions, for our vision. And eventually we believed that uh, cloud security is going to be like uh, a, one big platform. It's not going to be a discrete, you know, uh, series of products, siloed products working together. And somebody will need to connect the developer, the engineering to the security. And we believe it's going to be a great, great platform to do that. And now it's not theory, right? Uh, now, after two years in Palo Alto Networks, I could say it was a, a very, very good and smart decision. I mean, we continue to do what we did before. We are building security products for developers, but now we are working in such an amazing uh, scale. Uh, we have now millions of developers working on our products. We have uh, hundreds of customers, and this is you know growing really, really fast. So I'm really happy for this decision. That must be really satisfying. Millions of developers, hundreds of customers. That's got to be really cool. For sure. 
Idan, many talk about the difference between a company being sold and a company being acquired. I believe you you even mentioned the the when you kind of mentioned fourth scale, you mentioned you sold the company and with Bridge Guru you got acquired. How did these experiences differ from one another and what learnings can you share with founders listening? Well, as you described it, Owen, it's exactly the opposite in all sense. I mean, the due diligence, the outcome, the experience is exactly the opposite. Uh, but, you know, bottom line is that I think you could never plan in advance. Uh, you could never plan a good acquisition. A good acquisition will always be surprising or will become or will came to you. And the one tip I have for founders and entrepreneurs, you know, don't think that it will ever happen. Actually, your assumption should be that an acquisition will never happen. And now go back and build a business. And everything will be, I believe, just fine from that point. Interesting. Very uh, serendipity kind of uh, look on the world. But that's helpful context. Thanks. So let's fast forward the clock a little bit. You're now, you know, you now work at Palo Alto Networks. You're not in the small startup who may or may not be looking to be acquired, but you're doing some of the acquiring. And you also invest in, in startups. What's it been like for you to sit on the other side of the table? How does your past experience as an entrepreneur shape for you how you look at acquisitions or investments? And of course, we're not looking for any specifics. We know you can't share them, but just generally, what's that like? Yeah, well, I, mean, I, will not, I won't talk about the Palo Alto Network side here, but uh, as you could imagine, I mean, when I'm meeting founders, when I'm meeting teams, when I'm meeting companies, I could get them. I understand, you know, what did they do? And I actually have lots of respect to them because I understand how hard is it and how you know big are the challenges of building a company and building teams and building a business. And I could spot very quickly what are the core assets of the company and of the team. I could identify where and when they're not being honest with me or actually with themselves. And I could even give them some tips from my experience. But... But maybe, you know, we should, and you know that Glenn Oren more than anybody else, each company is very, very different. And it's much more like an art than a science. And my experience doesn't mean that it's relevant for this specific company. All I could give is like respect and perspective. That's in keeping with you and what we know about you, a very humble way to look at the world. But we often say that every company is a snowflake in that they're they're unique. So the stories are always different, but there are things that rhyme company to company and maybe some other you know, advice you could give if you were advising another founder who was maybe thinking about or being approached by potential acquirers, take Palo Alto out of it, say that you know, it's not in security, it's in uh, the data space or application software space. And they come to you and say, hey, Don, like, you know, I wasn't looking, I was building my grocery store. I was not looking to be acquired, but if, you know, one or more companies have approached me, what advice do you have if someone's going to, going to think about it? And, you know, if you want to give them some understanding of what the other side, the acquiring side is thinking about or what might motivate them, how do you advise? It all starts with uh, a need, right? And usually the acquire, they have a need and the need is usually a gap 
they have a gap in their offering, they have a gap in their product or in their technology, and they believe that they could accelerate the solution by acquiring a company. So if an acquirer is approaching you, you should ask yourself, okay, can I fill their gap uh, with my product, with my technology, with my experience? However, founders usually think it's all about the gap and the need. But from my experience, it's more complicated. I think it's maybe 20-80. It's 20% the gap or the need of the acquirer, but it's 80% the culture fit and the founder's fit. And, you know, they say that the vast majority, I think 90% or even more of the acquisitions fail and they fail not because of technology, they fail because it's really hard to take a startup with the energy of a startup and, and merge it into a big company. And if you want that, the move to be successful, you need to have a, an amazing cultural fit and you need to have the right spirit and the right fit of the human capital. And this is, I think, 80% of why the acquirer will decide to buy this specific company or not. That really resonates for me. And I, I'm going to brag about you for a second, even though you wouldn't ever do that about yourself. But obviously, for Palo Alto, I have to believe when they make, and they make several acquisitions, when they look back and say, hey, was this one successful? Like, did we achieve the goals we wanted to achieve? So much of it has to do with, you know, did, did the leader or leaders stick around? And did they add value to the broader Palo Alto? And you've obviously, you've had a great run at Palo Alto and have grown the business both organically and inorganically that you're running. And I got to believe they're, they're very pleased with that. And that, you know, for you just adds to your ability. And I think this is a good, good reminder to other founders. If you ever do sell a business and you want to keep going, you want to found another company, you want to you know, have a life beyond that one deal, making sure that you live up to the expectation of the acquirer and maybe even over deliver is really helpful because it, it adds to the, the valley and, and tech, the tech world is a small place and your reputation builds as you succeed, not just in getting an exit, but then having that company land and do well at the acquire. And you've clearly done that. So congrats to you. Thanks, Glenn. You founded startups in both the U.S. and in Israel. Could you talk perhaps about some of the key differences in building companies in either country? And what would you recommend to other Israeli founders? The first company I, I founded was like 10 years ago. And the last 10 years, it was like, I don't know, 50, right? Uh, so 10 years ago, it was nuts, like building a company, when a security company, when you set in Israel and the market is in the U.S. So it was really clear I need to take my wife and my daughter and to move to the Bay Area and to start building the business there. Uh, why? Because it's really important to be close to the customers. I think now, you know, BridgeCool was built in the U.S. I was there. It was much easier. The, cust I didn't, the customers weren't customers. They were my friends, right? Like I knew them. And we actually, I went hiking with some of them. And I knew, you know, the employees, I the first employees of Bridgeco, the U.S. ones, I knew them. They were friends of mine. So everything, the investors, I knew them. So everything was easier. Uh, but Bridgeco was a PLG company. 
it's a, it was a product-led growth company and we worked with developers. So yeah, I met customers, but the real customers were developers and we had developers all over the world. And as you could imagine, the developers didn't really want to meet us or talk to us. They wanted to test the code and to contribute to our open source. So I, and then, you know, COVID started <laughs> and then nobody wanted to meet nobody. And I think what we saw that uh, in the last 10 years is that suddenly you have big companies that were built in Israel, that are being managed in Israel, you know, unicorn public companies, and you didn't see that 10 years ago. So if you you would ask me where you will build a company, either in the US or Israel, I don't know, but you as the CEO, you need to be close to the customers. So ask yourself, where are the customers? That's helpful. Thanks. I want to shift gear and, and talk about your newest initiative, Place.io. What, what is the problem that Place.io is tackling? Why is it important? Perhaps you can touch on you know, how Israeli companies hiring tech talent right now and what are they missing that Place.io is hopefully going to fix? Yeah, so Placeale is a nonprofit. It's an Israeli tech nonprofit, and I co-founded it with Karen Halperin, and I'm the chairman of it. And it all starts with uh, the amazing statistics. You know, the Israeli tech uh, contribution to the economy grew amazingly in the last uh, decade. Uh, you know, 25% of the income tax in Israel, 25% is coming from the Israeli tech. And if you think about the export, 55% of the export is coming from the tech. But only 10%, only 10% of the Israeli population work in tech. This is like a very disturbing gap, if you, if you ask me. And we ask ourselves, how can we bring more people to the Israeli tech? How can we expand it? How can we take the Israeli tech to underrepresented groups? especially the Arab population in Israel, especially the ultra-Orthodox population in Israel. And we understood that the only way to do that is if we will join forces. And if the biggest companies in Israel will join forces together, like Palo Alto Networks and Google and Cisco and Intel and Armis and Riskified and others. And we join forces to do a couple of things. First of all, to attract these talents to attract people from underrepresented groups. And we screen them together in order to find, you know, the potential of them, although they usually don't have experience, you know, they're juniors in our terminology. And we bring them experience by taking them into internship programs. So for the first time, a talent that came from an underrepresented group, they could start, after screening, they could start an internship of three to 12 months in the Israeli tech. This is how they're getting a so valuable experience. And this is how the teams of the industry, like the team leads and the developers could see, hey, actually, they are great. And although we have, we might have a big cultural gap, uh, they're coming from other groups, other cultures. Actually, they're amazing and they contribute to code and they're fun and they're valuable and they could be the leaders of tomorrow. And this is how we try to bridge the gap and I'm really, really, really proud of this initiative. We just started, and but you know, Owen, we already have dozens of interns. We have more than 40 companies with us, and the feedback that we're getting from the field is is amazing. I mean, the 
developers, the CTOs, VPR and this tell us, hey, actually, you know, we would never see this talent and they are so valuable and we believe that could change Israel uh, for the good. And I'm also really, really proud that you guys and thanks Oren and Glenn for joining us as partners for uh, GGV Capital and uh, lots of work ahead, but uh, we're going to change Israel. That's really important mission. Definitely super proud of, of, of being a part of it and congrats to you and Karen for, for leading the charge. Seems like you have already been doing great impact on Israeli society and the tech ecosystem in general. So thanks. Yeah, I want to echo that. Idan, thank you for caring and doing the hard work, recruiting Karen, who's fantastic. Orn and I had a chance to spend time with her a couple of weeks back in Tel Aviv. And we know we've, we've worked with a lot of uh, these types of programs in the past at GGV, and we know how important energy is from the founder and founding team. And the two of you are a dynamic duo, and we're really looking forward to great results and really believe in your mission. So thank you for spending the time on it and getting us involved. Last question for you. We'd love to look into your crystal ball. You know, you've had an amazing career. Where do you think you'll be three to five years from now? Wow, I have no idea. I mean, if you would ask me five years ago, this is if I would be back in Israel and if I would work for Palo Alto Networks and in a nonprofit, I would say you're nuts. So I have no idea. But I will tell you this. I mean, I'm sure that in uh, three to five years, I will build businesses and I will have big impact. Uh, not only on tech, but also on the Israeli society. Well, we hope we uh, continue to partner with you in more ways in the future. And we're looking forward to hearing about your next great ideas. We're going to put you on the, the hot seat now for our speed round to end the episode. Okay. So just say the first thing that comes to mind. You've mentioned you, you like to hike. And you've also mentioned you take some of your, you've taken employees and customers on hikes with you. Where's your favorite hiking spot? Maybe pick one and one in the Bay Area or U.S. and maybe one in Israel. Uh, in the Bay Area, is, it's easy. It's Yosemite. And I've been there so many times. In Israel, it's also easy. It's the Israeli desert and specifically Nahal Tzin when the tomb of Ben-Gurion is. Taking notes here. Idan, you lived in the U.S., but you also went back to Israel a few years ago. What surprised you the most from that transition back to Israel? Probably two things. First of all, the food which is so important for my life and family Good or bad. Seeing, yeah seeing my kids with their cousins and uh, grandmothers and fathers it's amazing Orin knows I'm I'm a big uh, fan of the food in in Israel and uh, actually listeners on this podcast know that as well we we talk a lot about the delicacies that one can one can get in Tel Aviv and outside but Glenn you didn't talk about my nephews so <laughs> there you go there you go there's something new on every episode um what advice would you give to a young idan knowing what you know today uh, i would probably say to idan uh take a big deep breath and uh trust your guts if you weren't doing security what would you be doing as a profession probably something in the public sector well, I was expecting grocery store owner, but uh, public, public sector is good, good, good as well. Yeah, or a basketball player if you knew if you saw how tall Idan is. Yeah, Idan is tall. Idan is tall. Idan, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Orin and I are both huge fans of yours and the work you're doing. Uh, we look forward to keeping our relationship close and 
you know, seeing, seeing what else, what other great things you accomplish in your career. And again, thank you for your involvement in Place IL and allowing us to be part of that journey. We're, we're very excited about it. Thank you. It was fun. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobyte, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.